0: driving forces. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I thank you for tuning in to WBAI today. As Reggie noted, you were just listening to Let's Talk with John Kane and Regan DeLogans, and it was great to be able to hear former co-host Tony Rice on the radio once again, and it's, it's, it's great also to hear that she's doing better. As Reggie said a few moments ago, this is a work in progress. I have always considered myself a work in progress too. So I'm fitting in really well with our format these days. And Reggie, I appreciate you keeping this going each week. So thank you so much. Uh, I've got a lot going on during the show today, so in a few moments, uh, I'll probably get to our first guest in just a few minutes. Uh, but news out of Washington is dominating a lot of the coverage right now. Earlier today. The former director of the federal, a federal medical research facility, uh, a whistleblower, Rick Bright, testified for several hours before congressional lawmakers saying that his warnings about supply shortages were being ignored, that the Trump administration was too slow to respond. That seems not to be a surprise to anyone uh, who listens to this station, that they were too slow to respond. And he also cast doubt on what they're saying, that there'll be a vaccine uh, within 12 to 18 months. In fact, he when he was asked If uh, when the president said uh, or has said repeatedly that anyone who wants a test can get a test, uh, is that true? He said no. And he also said, at this time, we need to unleash the voices of the scientists. So a lot of news coming out of Washington D.C. today, and throughout the show, I'm going to come back to some of the other news reports. But something that's been in the news that's going to lead into my first guest today is the the what's being called racist policing, a double standard when it comes to who gets ticketed uh, for socially for not socially isol- or distancing themselves for others. Uh, These calls have been growing louder after the police, the NYPD, released data on summonses and arrests over the past week that showed that 90 percent of the people arrested and 82 percent of those who got summonses for offenses related to the pandemic have been people of color, black or Hispanic. So this is going to bring me to my first guest, who has something to say on this. Uh, Just a few days ago, district attorneys in several of our counties here in the city weighed in on how they will treat social distancing arrests that come to their office. So joining me now this afternoon, welcome back to WBAI, Queens District Attorney, Melinda Katz.
1: Jeff, always a pleasure. Thank you for having me on again and thank you for all the work that you do really highlighting all of these issues throughout the city of New York.
0: Thanks so much. So as I just noted, there's been a lot of questions about how the NYPD has responded when people are not socially distancing. What has been your concern and what actions are you going to take? So it was interesting about,
1: I guess, two weeks ago uh, or a week and a half ago, uh, I got a call from uh, our department of intake. Uh, they just got a case in at DAT or they were going through the process uh, for a homeless man who is on the subway without a mask. Um, and we really had to make a decision at that moment. You know, the law is to six feet social distance or wear a mask, or if you're in public transportation to wear a mask period. Um, but he didn't have a mask and he also didn't have a home. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we decided at that moment we are not prosecuting uh, for social distancing. This is a public health crisis. We do not want to turn it into a criminal justice crisis. Uh, and you know, this should be done by better ways, right? We need to hand out masks. We need to hand out gloves. We need to do it in every single community. We need to make sure that everyone has the right tools to protect themselves. Um, And it's not something we can police our way out of. And, you know, and I say this with the same um, way that I say we're not going to prosecute a lot of lower level crimes. But, you know, the unions have made it clear as well over the last week uh, that, you know, writing summonses and DATs for this crime, it's not what they want to do. We need to make sure people get the help
0: they need. So why do you think we're seeing these racial disparities in the NYPD's enforcement of this?
1: You know, out of the 20 that we had, um, as of a few days ago, I guess there was 16 uh, were African-American or Latino. Um, and, you know, I would say that the cops are doing the best they can with something that really I, I don't believe um, we should be writing summonses for. Uh, you know, I think that it's it's one of those things that, that ha- can have disparities without even realizing it. But at the end of the day, it's clearly just not the right way to deal with the crisis. Having said that, you know you have to respect police officers. Every single day are going out, uh, going into crowds, making sure that people are social distancing. They're trying everything uh, to do it. Um, I, I hope that they start giving out masks and gloves, although I think they are in, in some areas. Um, and so I think that's where we are. Um, but we need to make sure that uh, the laws that we have, like you know stop and frisk, was clearly um, not um, effectuated. Uh, in a fair and equitable way, we need to make sure that all of our other uh, laws that are 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 followed, um, and that are enforced by our police department,
0: are done the same. So you're only a few months into the job. How is your office operating <laughs> now? What I know. Welcome. Uh, what changes uh, welcome. have you? <laughs> what changes mm-hmm. have you had to make in terms of how your office operates amid this pandemic?
1: So for those of your listeners that don't know, the Queen's District Attorney's Office has 700 people uh, who work for me there. Uh, 320 are attorneys. The rest are paralegals, uh, assistants, all that comes with running an office. Uh, We have had to, the first month that I was there, as you know, we got rid of our 180-80 policy, which said that if you don't waive a grand jury right within the time allotted, um, the Queen's DA's Office would not negotiate any plea. We got rid of that policy on day one. Um, Then, you know, the bail laws changed on day one. Uh, The bail laws changed again, uh, effective in a few weeks, but the new discovery laws are now in effect, and we had a pandemic. So, yeah, it's been an interesting first four months. Uh, We had to, we saw it coming down the road, I have to tell you. Um, We were very uh, conscious of the fact that this was happening and when it was happening. We saw it coming. Our grand jurors stopped coming because they were either getting ill uh, or they were scared. Uh, of the virus, rightfully so. We saw them shrink. Uh, We saw that there were uh, ADAs and folks getting ill. Uh, And we saw this coming. We immediately ordered computers. We immediately made sure we had the broad bandwidth in order to um, continue our discovery and all of the other requirements of the office. We have made a staggered schedule for intake to make sure that when people get arrested, that there are uh, adequate numbers of folks on the ground to do the intake, to do the arraignments that have to be done. We made sure that all the computers had the software they needed. Um, and we have a staggered staff at the office. And I'm in every single day. My chief's uh, executive is in every single day. Um, and so we've had to do that. Um, as you know, we're starting felony hearings, preliminary hearings, uh, tomorrow if I'm not you know, tomorrow. Um, and it's going to be an interesting time. But it has been uh, an interesting first few months, Jeff. I have to say that. But we haven't skipped a beat. And by the way... While we're in the middle of this entire pandemic, uh, I have opened a violent criminal enterprise bureau to go after the gangs and go after the traffickers of guns in the borough of Queens County. I have opened the uh, first Bureau of Human Trafficking um, to go after folks that are bringing folks in uh, to traffic humans to do sex trafficking. Uh, We started a worker and housing protection bureau so that if there's an accident on a work site We have DAs out there um, combing the site. So a lot of work's getting done.
0: Another issue that uh, has been out there uh, has been the release of people from Rikers Island. Your office works with defense attorneys, the mayor's office, Department of Corrections, to determine who could be released amid the pandemic. What's the proper balance? What should happen?
1: You know, I'd like to to think that Queens County elected me to have a steady hand um, and a proper hand. Uh, When it comes to balancing the safety of individuals um, that are living here, uh, and that includes defendants as well. And it includes everyone in balancing the interests of the community for public health. So the first few days, I think it was like March 15th uh, or somewhere around there, uh, the city started giving lists of defendants that were in Rikers uh, that were city sentenced, right? These are folks, you know, they had had a nine-month sentence, but they've already done seven months. Or they had a a 364-day sentence, but they've already done 10 months. Uh, And we started agreeing to releases um, of those individuals that were on Rikers who really did most of their sentence. Uh, They were nonviolent crimes, uh, nonviolent defendants. Um, And so we started doing that. There was about 30 or so of those in the very beginning. Um, And then there was about 50 others uh, that we did not object to uh, the city's release for. Um, And we've been looking at individual writs and individual applications. What we've really been trying to do, and we have been doing, is looking at our individual cases and seeing what we can uh, look at and and try to give a a better uh, plea offer uh, and all of those things that come with releasing people. Um, But at the end of the day, a steady hand also means that the safety of individuals in our county are also important. And so we've tried to give that steady hand to the office.
0: And I know we've only got about two minutes left. Uh, for those listeners who were not familiar uh, you know, uh, with this, Queens is one of the hardest hit areas. And in your case, you had tested positive. What was your experience, the onset of symptoms, and your recovery like?
1: The, yeah, I, I, I was symptomatic. I had a fever. Um, I was very weak. I had a lot of aches and pain. Um I went to the doctor. I fit all the criteria. I got a test. Um, And I did test positive, and I think, like everyone, the minute you get that positive test, you worry. This disease is so unknown, Uh, and there's so many ramifications that I I really believe we still don't know about. I was one of the lucky ones, you know. I was I had few symptoms. Uh, It was quick. Uh, My children were here to self uh, to shelter with me, Um, and you know, my heart goes out. As I was going through that, I realized, and, and not realized, but I. I thought of all those other folks who are going through this alone, Um, and they are uh, alone. Uh, They have to shelter in. Many of them are in high-risk groups, and I will tell you what I've told everyone who will listen and who I've gone on the air with. Please check on your loved ones. Please check on the folks that you know don't have a lot of family around. It's really important that we all all check in. Um, That includes people that are living alone. It also includes victims of domestic violence. Which, you know, it's counterintuitive. Uh, we believe it is vastly underreported right now because people don't know um, what's going to happen when they report it in this pandemic. It's, it's scary. Uh, so that's how it was. And, uh, look, I feel very lucky. I have my two children. Um, and we get, we're getting through this like everyone else. And I'm homeschooling, by the way, which <laughs> everyone is listening that's homeschooling. I feel your pain. I think the teachers have done an amazing job, but it really, you know, working a full-time job and homeschooling, and a lot of us are doing it.
0: I'm hearing that from colleagues and friends right now, what they're going through, too. Queens District Attorney Melinda Katz, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you for all you do, Jeff. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks. So you've been listening to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I was just talking with Melinda Katz, the Queens District Attorney. Uh, throughout uh, the last few weeks, I've been trying to bring you the voices of New Yorkers uh, from all walks of life, as, as you've probably been hearing from a number of our other hosts, uh, people who've been impacted by COVID-19. I urge you uh, to go online, and we're going to get to a segment in just a little while, but to go online to WBAI.org, So you can check out the series by Celeste katz Marston because she's also doing yeoman's work interviewing a number of New Yorkers from all walks of life and how they're impacted by this. Given what I do uh, during, I'll say during the day, I work with nonprofits. That's my full-time job, and I volunteer here at WBAI, so I'm hearing consistently from all the nonprofits how they are suffering at this time they've had to cut staff shut programs they're trying to figure out a path forward and also look long term not just short term but long term how they're going to be able to sustain their operations their lifelines to the communities that they serve and i I care deeply about supporting them but i also care deeply about Supporting media and uh, last week I had on the uh, editor-in-chief of the Amsterdam News and we talked about how a lot of news outlets people who provide you with information uh, are, are suffering at this time. And that brings me to WBAI and why I just want to say thank you to those who are religious listeners uh, who tune in to listen to Revolutions Per Minute or Voices of Resistance or Max and Murphy or this show. And, I'm, and thank you for tuning into this show. I mean, we've been around for for 60 years, six decades Think about that. We've been bringing you progressive, commercial-free, non-corporate radio. And even though we had that bump last year, that bump in the road when we were off air, we came back, uh, You know, we are trying to be as strong as ever. If you recall that hit us last year when we were temporarily off uh, for a month, that hit us right as we were kicking off our fall fundraising drive. That's why right now I want to just talk briefly about our spring fundraising drive, which just started a few days ago. And what I'm asking you to do, if it is possible, give whatever you can. And Reggie had talked about this, too. Give what you can. I don't want anyone to really have to make a choice between putting food on the table and donating somewhere when food and shelter are incredibly important. But if WBII means something to you and you can afford to give something, whether it's $5 or 10 or 15 or even more, one time is great. But what I would love is if you can consider even just an ongoing sustaining contribution by becoming what is called a BAI buddy. I'm one of those. I'm proud to be a BAI buddy. I by being a bai buddy i get a uh, a tote bag that i love to use when i go food shopping because i'm not resorting back to using plastic bags as much as i can now even though that new law has been relaxed at this point so to become a bai buddy there are several really easy ways you can do this even for five ten dollars a month people usually give about 15 you can go online and you just have to go to this website address, give to, that's the number two, WBAI.org, that's give to WBAI.org, and you click on Buddies. Uh, it's usually in the left uh, upper left-hand corner when the site opens up, and you just have to follow a few prompts. It's very easy to set up. If you don't even wanna do that, you could just call. The number to call just to become a BAI buddy is 516-620-3602 again that's five one six six two zero three six zero two and a, another easier way is to just text wbai to the number four one four 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 that's four one four 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 and just follow the prompts on your smartphones I hope you can do this. I think it's very important that we do whatever we can to keep WBAI on the air. Uh, You know, Reggie said we're a work in progress amid this pandemic. But you know what? We're a work in progress that means something to so many people, and we want to be able to stay on the air. So I'm going to get to uh, Celeste's segment now because I I was starting to tease this before because I think about them all the time as I've listened to them, as she shares them with me. What the way she structures them is so poignant and so moving because she's not putting her voice in their beginning and the end, but she's letting these people speak and knitting together their sentiments. And so throughout this pandemic, we're going to continue to bring you these dispatches. And she actually spoke to a friend of mine, unbeknownst to me, uh, a friend of mine who, had, who works at WABC-TV here in New York City. He used to work with me over at New York One News years ago. Uh, his name is Sefon Kim, and I'd like you to hear that. Reggie, if you could play that. You're
2: listening to WBAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. This is New York in Crisis, WBAI's coronavirus diary.
3: I'm Sefan Kim. I'm a reporter with WABC-TV in New York. Well before any of this happened with the shutdown or, or the the, uh, the quarantine, if you want to call it that, the pause, A lot of the Chinatowns, and there's several in New York, right? You have Flushing in Queens and Chinatown Manhattan, even have some in Brooklyn. They have been suffering long before the economic shutdown, right? Because even in February, January, there was a lot of xenophobia. And some of it, I would say, not even just from outsiders. I say that because, for instance, Flushing, Queens, Chinatown, Unlike Manhattan, it's not primarily based on tourism revenue. But you saw restaurants there virtually empty even back then. And that is, to me, an indicator that even the local residents in that community had fears about eating out. So they were suffering early on. And so for them, this has been going on how many months now? And then you couple in the economic shutdown. And it's been tremendous, I think. These are communities that you never see close, um, which are closed indefinitely and and may struggle to reopen. A lot of these folks are small business owners that don't have the savvy to apply for these loans or are undocumented, for instance, and are afraid to file police reports. Just think about anecdotally the number of incidents that don't go reported, right? And, And that's been the sort of the stark, disturbing contrast is Crime has virtually vanished. I mean, it's plummeted. There's nothing else to cover in the city right now but the pandemic. You, you drive around town, there's nothing happening except for the anti-Asian incidents. And, and that's been sort of the alarming thing is that while crime has plummeted to like near zero levels, the incidents against uh, the hate crimes against Asian-Americans has risen uh, in just complete opposite direction. So that is the only area we're seeing real crime um, ticking up, and that's obviously troubling. If you follow the news, you know, there's a debate now about if the NYPD should be in the business at all about enforcing social distancing. And you have, you know, some pretty controversial situations now that police are getting into with with the general public. Um, So you're starting to have increased the number of incidents outside of the Asian community, not all positive per se. Um, that's not to say that there isn't positivity when you look around, but um, I think there's an evolution now of sort of the behavior of folks. We are, as everyone understands, a little cooped up, getting antsy, right? Um, and there's a question about how you enforce all this. If there's some positivity here is that everyone realizes that you know it sounds cliche, but we are really in it together in that sense, right? The issues and the, and the challenges that one community faces is more or less the same as the other. Now, this has been reported a lot about the economic disparity, and that's been, I think, abundantly highlighted in the media, that you know, if you live in poverty and impoverished, you're having a harder time you know, accessing health care and, and nutritious food, for instance, right? And if anything, I think that we can all agree that this time has sort of exacerbated and highlighted the inequalities, I guess, of the system, right? Like Those who are vulnerable have become more vulnerable, whether it's by age or poverty. And I think if anyone wasn't, on, wasn't aware of this acutely, you certainly are now. The reality is uh, I don't think like most New Yorkers are walking around blaming each other, right? I, mean, I think that needs to be sort of clarified, right? You're always gonna have a few troublemakers and in a time like this, they tend to get a little more attention. It's important to keep in context, I think.
2: Sefon Kim is a reporter with WABC-TV and a co-chair of the Asian American Journalists Association's Media Watch. Stay tuned for more installments of New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary, and for the latest news and updates on COVID-19.
0: And that was our Celeste Katz-Marson. Again, I encourage you to visit our website, WBAI.org, to check out all of her uh, coronavirus diary dispatches. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM here in New York, uh, also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. I thank you for tuning in uh, this afternoon. I just wanted to give you a little more news before we get to the next guest. Uh, uh, As far as updates... That have come out uh, earlier today. Let's see, up to uh, nearly 300,000 people. They're saying now. That's the total number who have died worldwide, and the highest number of fatalities in the United are here in the United States, also Britain, Italy. I'm sure you've all heard about uh, the crisis in Italy, uh, Spain, and France. Here in New York. Uh, as of yesterday, New York reported more than 22,000 total deaths of New Yorkers who had tested positive, uh, and there were just yesterday 166 uh, – or as of Tuesday, excuse me, there were 166 more fatalities – uh it's now been that number is important because it's now been more than a month since the highest single day total back on april 8th that's when they were just under 800 deaths they so logged 799. so the reason these numbers are also important as we're seeing fewer people passing away each day as a result of covid 19 is because there has been increasing pressure not just here in the city or state uh, but across the country on regions to gradually reopen Uh, And here in New York, the governor had said earlier that uh, a fourth region in upstate New York has met uh, specific criteria to start gradually reopening. Here in New York City, we've not reached that point yet, but it seems as if some of the standards are going to be uh, relaxed and that there'll be uh, certain types of businesses that are going to be allowed to reopen uh, relatively soon. Uh, The number of new hospitalizations also has continued to stay at at the levels uh, that preceded uh, the governor's stay-at-home orders. The governor uh, had reported that 416, there are 416 new virus-related hospitalizations and 20, about 2,200 new confirmed cases. You know, as I've, I've said during the show, just remind our listeners, I'm kind of broadcasting from here in Jackson Heights, Queens, just a short distance from Elmhurst Hospital, which was, if you were not familiar with it, which was one of the epicenters when it comes to the number of cases that received national attention. What's also been going on uh, just within the last week, this is uh, of increasing urgency, is the number of children who are now experiencing another medical condition. State officials are saying that they were investigating 102 cases, this seems like it's just steadily increasing, of a rare, dangerous inflammatory syndrome that uh, uh, afflicts children and appears to somehow be connected with a coronavirus. Uh, When it comes to our schools, So the governor, as you know, about a week or so ago, had announced that we are not going to be able to reopen the schools this academic year. The discussion is now what happens, not so much over the summer with any type of summer school programs, because uh, as you've heard, the summer youth employment program for one has been canceled, but what happens the next academic year? So the governor has said he's not yet decided uh, whether public schools and colleges are going to reopen in the fall for in-person. Person classes. And uh, as I talked with Melinda Katz as well, the other issue uh, that has been dominating discussion right now is uh, whether the NYPD should be in the business of ticketing people uh, for not socially distancing themselves at this time. So obviously. We've talked a lot Max and Murphy focused on this significantly with a guest last week we talked we've talked a lot about the economic impact and unemployment is skyrocketing not just across uh, the state uh, but across our country. I read an article the other day about the guest that we've had a guest we've had on the show before and in studio which we can't do these days uh, uh, New York City councilman Rafael Espinal who had left the council in January to head the freelancers union, discuss the impact on freelancers. Now, if you're not familiar with the freelancers union, it's the largest organization that represents the growing independent workforce. So only a few months into the job, he only started, if I'm correct, back in January. He now finds himself on the front lines of this fight, doing whatever he can to support freelancers who are losing work as the coronavirus shutdown continues. So, I invited him back here to WBAI to talk about his work now and what the union is doing to support freelancers. Welcome back to WBAI.
4: Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, always.
0: I, I stumbled because I was about to say, welcome, councilman, but I can't, I can't <laughs> say that right now. <laughs> so, so start off by talking about the, the size of the freelancers union, the number of members you have, and the, the types of freelancers that you represent.
4: Yeah, well, the Freelancers Union is an organization that was started here in New York City, uh, but it, it expanded across the country. So we have about 500,000 members uh, in states uh, across the entire country, but in New York, I would say that our membership has grown to about one hundred seventy-five to 190,000 uh, New Yorkers, uh, which we're very proud of, and we uh, work on many different levels to provide support and services uh, to a workforce that historically – Uh, has gone without any real representation.
0: And early on, you surveyed members to get a a sense of how the pandemic was impacting them. What did you find, and what are some of the challenges that they're facing?
4: I mean, I I would say this. This this pandemic has really uh, devastated uh, the the freelance workforce. Uh, One, because we know that the freelancers don't have the same uh, social safety net as traditional workers. Uh, So you have folks who depend on on the need for work in order to bring income into their homes, because they, they, they traditionally never qualify for programs like unemployment insurance. Uh, but what we found in our surveys uh, early on was that uh, over 80% of our members uh, were, pre- were predicting not to have any work uh, through the pandemic. But what we also found is that over 85% of those workers who who uh, applied for all of the federal relief funds that came out of the Washington's uh, CARES Act, to this day have not been able to receive a a dollar uh, through those programs. Uh, So we're talking about New Yorkers uh, who have gone almost uh, more than two months uh, without any any sort of income to be able to pay things like rent and being able to put food on the table.
0: And, And what counsel do you give them? What advice do you give them?
4: Well, it's 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 very difficult, you know. Uh, you know, our our ability uh, to to be able uh, to to get real relief to to uh, this large workforce in our city, uh, our hands are tied to be able to do that. So, what we have been doing uh, is really trying to disseminate all of the information that's been coming out of Washington, uh, trying to uh, work with our elected officials to ensure that freelancers who are having a tough time applying for these funds uh, have have access. Uh, to that information on how to do so, uh, we also created a freelance relief fund, uh, which is a fund that I that I that I created in 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 the first few weeks of this pandemic, as a way for those who can, uh, to be able to donate and get those dollars straight to the hands of freelancers who are in dire financial straits. Um, so I, I really what I can really tell uh, freelancers out there who are still having trouble is to keep pushing your local elected officials uh, to ensure that the agencies are, are disseminating those funds as quickly as possible so you can qualify and get the relief you need.
0: How do you you think this pandemic is going to reshape the perception about freelancers and their roles today? For instance, what issues are people confronting now that might prompt legislative remedies?
4: Well, I think this pandemic has really shined a light uh, uh, on on the need for this workforce to get uh, real support and real real, um, economic insurance moving forward. For example... Unemployment insurance is a program that freelancers never qualified for, but because of the CARES Act, for the first time, unemployment insurance was expanded to include independent workers. Uh, That's a program that I feel should stay in place moving forward. And now that the state has put the the money and the infrastructure behind uh, allowing for independent workers to apply for those programs, it it, it makes sense to keep those programs in place so that down the line, if we're facing another pandemic or if you have a freelancer who uh, is facing uh, t- uh, tough financial, um, you know, situations because of the, because because of their inability to find work, that they'll be able to rely on a program of unemployment insurance to stay in place. Uh, so I think that, this, that that this pandemic, while while it has had a devastating impact, is really shining a light on the need uh, for real programs uh, that, that have been created already to continue being in place moving forward.
0: And I should note that while you were on the New York City Council, you had uh, uh, successfully pushed for the Freelances and Free Act. Uh, Are there, uh, you know, are there other issues that the freelancers union is going to be advocating for in the coming months?
4: Absolutely. Uh, One, as I mentioned earlier, was keeping unemployment insurance in the books moving forward. Uh, Paid sick leave is another big issue uh, that we want to take on, you know, when freelancers get sick. Uh, they have no other way to make up that income that is lost. Uh, and, again, because of the CARES Act, there is a paid sick leave component in there in which freelancers are now able to apply for, for that program um, uh, through this pandemic. So, again, there is, there's programs that, that, that for a long time have, have only applied to traditional workforce that are now applying to freelancers, and we're going to focus heavily on making sure that, that our state and our city is doing everything to keep those programs in place.
0: So you know I've been reading a lot about the government relief programs uh, especially in my field how the nonprofit sector is is suffering there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of advocacy to get our elected officials to uh, you know consider different sectors as we look maybe towards another stimulus package uh, what do you hear on a very you know on a very uh, grassroots level from the freelancers you talk with these are all human stories these are people who might for instance have already done freelance work that they're now not getting paid for what is your average day like when you're when you're encountering people who are finding it you know a, a challenge right now
4: no it's it's really challenging hearing hearing the stories because you know the reality is that you you have a, a workforce in new york city the workforce is, makes up over 30 percent of of the city's workforce um that that was depending that it is depending on all these programs that are put into place to work for them and because they haven't worked for them they're they're really in in really tough tough situations and trying to figure out where the next buck is going to come from how they're going to pay the rent uh which which i, I would say that it's 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 difficult because you know you know when you when you when there's a system set up in a way where you have to depend on the federal government solely provide this relief you know i think a lot of times these stories get lost and while while the while the federal government is working on on issues acro- on, across the board it's very easy to lose the, the the freelancer story in the mix so you know we're we're doing everything we can to elevate those stories we're doing everything we can to elevate the the need uh for for relief so um you know it's 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 a it's a challenging time it's, it's really hard to put it into words
0: and, and i've just got about a, a few minutes left how large is the union staff, and how have you had to alter your operations?
4: Well, the, the union is a very—it's a very, it's a very uh, modest team. You know, it's, it's about a dozen of us that are working around the clock uh, to follow what's happening in states across the country and, and listening to the needs of freelancers everywhere. Uh, but uh, we—you know—we're doing everything we can with, with the resources we have. Um and we you know we we are really are, are, are small and nimble but we're 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 packing the punch and I think we're doing a good job at disseminating all the information that's out there and making sure that freelancers are feeling heard but also feel like they're being represented uh, in, in a very strong way.
0: So, and as I get ready to close, I do want to ask this. So I was in government for eight years and I have to tell you, it was a dramatic shift from my day-to-day life at the end of 2009 till my first day of 2010, when I left the city controller's office, do you, you know, going from becoming, being an active elected official in his district to, uh, you know, uh, rather abruptly leaving, do you regret the decision? What, like, it's a life change. What have you been going through?
4: Um, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's it's been tough. Uh, I would say that I, I was very uh, you know happy to have taken on the role as the president of the union. Uh, and I, I feel very blessed to be coming at a time where I could use my skills and experience in advocating and understanding how government works to be able to secure as much resources as I can for, for the freelancers across the city. But it is, as a person, it is a little frustrating when you can't wake up in the morning and say, I'm introducing a bill to fix this problem. You know, now I find myself... You know, trying just to yell and scream and making sure that that colleagues understand the need for legislation to get passed to, to support a vulnerable population. Um, that's that's where my head is at now, and I, you know, it's it, it is what it is. But I'm very happy with my decision. Um, but I do miss being able to be in in behind the scenes, understanding what's happening every minute, understanding why things are not moving.
0: And if any of our listeners are freelancers or want to know more information about the types of support that the union provides, uh, where should they go?
4: Well, they should go to freelancersunion.org. You'll be able to access all of the resources we provide and also be able to become a a union member. It's free, and uh, it's only a benefit, especially here in New York. New York City actually uh, helps the union fund a co-working space called the Freelancers Hub. Uh, which is free to members, so you won't have to pay to go into, for example, WeWork. You can just come to us, and you have a free co-working space made available to you. Right now it's closed, but once things get back to normal, I hope that uh, you can make use of that service.
0: Rafael Espinal, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI.
4: Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. So you've been listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI 99.5 FM and also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and you were just listening to my conversation with Rafael Espinal, who is leading the Freelancers Union. You probably recognize him from his work in the New York City Council, where in part he advocated for legislation that passed the Freelance isn't free act and before that I talked with uh, the relatively new both of them are new in their jobs when I think about it I've kind of had a theme today uh, the relatively new district attorney in Queens Melinda Melinda Katz Uh, I do want to remind you uh, as we get ready for the next guest that we are in fundraising mode and so if you have an opportunity just want to remind you if you get a few moments Go online to give to wbaiorg or call our call center at 516-620-3602. So another issue that I, I have been obsessed about because I work with nonprofits and they deal with these issues is homelessness. And it's been just great concern as I've followed the news coverage about the number of people who have needed shelter and have needed homes uh, amid this pandemic. Uh, You know, I was very disturbed about, you know, the fact that a number of people were living on the subways because they needed somewhere to go. Uh, And I'm glad to see that when uh, they started to be connected with shelters, people were, in many cases, finding a place to go. So that brings me to my final guest today, Uh, Covenant House New York. uh, For more than 45 years, the organization, a nonprofit, has provided residential services to vulnerable homeless, runaway, and exploited youths. As the largest provider of runaway and homeless youth services in New York City, Covenant House New York serves over 1,900 young adults uh, between the ages of 16 and 24 each year. Uh, And my guest is Sister Nancy Dowling, the Executive Director of Covenant House New York. Welcome to WBAI.
2: Thanks so much for taking time to talk with me today.
0: So I did not give a a description of the range of your services, because I'd love to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners a little about what Covenant House does.
2: Sure. So in addition to being able to provide shelter to young people who have experienced the trauma of homelessness, we also provide transitional housing to them where they can stay for up to two years. And then we also provide permanent supportive housing. And then beyond the residential services that we provide, we also have a federally qualified health center for young people who can uh, can come in and get uh, physical um, medical health take, attended to. Uh, we also have very strong mental health programs with a psychologist and licensed uh, social workers on hand to deal with some of the trauma that our young people have faced. We have education and employment services that we offer them, legal services youth development services and just a whole range of things that we try to provide arts and music uh, because there are so many talented young people who come to us.
0: Uh, I've been talking about how there's surging unemployment and housing instability. Given the pandemic, what do you envision is going to happen?
2: Well, what we saw during the last economic downturn back in 2008 was a, a, a large increase in the number of youth who are experiencing homelessness. Um, for many reasons, in part because they lose their jobs, in part because their family members lose employment, so poverty is a driving force, in part because the added stress of these types of situations create uh, more domestic violence uh, in the families, and so they get kicked out of the home um, with the added stress. And so we expect to see over these next year or so uh, an increase in the number of youth that are needing our services.
0: And I'm glad you mentioned that about domestic violence. The Queens District Attorney had mentioned that as as well earlier in the show. Talk a little about what Covenant House is going to be doing in the coming months. Uh, you know, I, I would like to say years, but I'm hoping the pandemic ends soon. Uh, but in the coming months, to address the increased need.
2: So you know, we we, in addition to the increased need, we've also had to look at you know how are we going to handle you know, young people who become, uh, you know, COVID positive. So we've had to convert some of our offices into uh, wellness spaces. We've had to move some of our offices to create more space for our young people in the residential setting. So we're trying to make sure that they are at least six feet apart, even when they're in sleeping quarters. So we don't want them right on top of each other. So those are some of the things that we've had to address. Um, In addition to which, you know, as always, when these things happen, we have to figure out how we do more with less. You know, how do we serve more youth? How do we get the youth off the street and into safe places? So we've expanded things like our transitional living programs, our permanent supportive housing programs, so we can get young know, people who come into shelter, through shelter and into more long-term stable housing situations. And I anticipate that that's what we will continue to do over the next year or two um, and over the next certainly over the next month. Uh, but we have to first make sure that we can serve them safely um, and make sure that we're attending to all of their needs.
0: And one thing that I've noticed is that a lot of uh, nonprofits have had to also ad- adapt uh, to a virtual world, take programs that were you know, done externally that were done in parks and plazas and in you know, gala halls uh, and, made, and turn them into uh, virtual events. You recently held uh, your annual signature event, Sleep Out America. How is it different this year and what was the response?
2: Well, this year we had to do it virtually, so we did it online. Uh, We had a great response. We had over 400 people across the United States who participated in Sleep Out America. They slept out in their backyards, on their living room floors, in their garages, um, and they joined us virtually online um, through WebEx, and we were very excited to be able to. It's not only a fundraiser uh, where we try to raise funds to support the work that we're doing with our young people, but it's also raising awareness. Raising awareness that there is youth homelessness in the United States, far more than people know, and what that, what that means for our young people. What are some of the traumas that our young people have experienced? So folks from across the United States got to hear from some of our young people, got to hear from our staff about the programs that we offer, you know, the stories of our youth, um, and got, got to understand what youth homelessness really looks like in the United States.
0: And when it comes to raising awareness, you also have another event. That's why I wanted to make sure I had you on the show. You have another event coming up next week. Can you talk a little about what's going to take place?
2: Yeah, normally on Monday, May 18th, we would be having our Night of Broadway Stars here in New York City and in other locations across the United States. But this year we can't do it live, so we are going to be doing it virtually uh, for the first time. We're very excited about it. We have a number of celebrities who will be joining us for this virtual concert entertainment and getting to know, again, about uh, youth homelessness. So it's, it, again, to enlighten people as to what's going on. But we have a number of stars who will be joining us. Audrey McDonald, John Dickerson will be hosting it for us. Stephen Colbert will be on, Meryl Streep, uh, Martin Short, uh, Morgan Freeman, and a whole host of other people as well. We're very excited and very grateful uh, for the support that we've gotten.
0: What? What would you say, and I'm glad you said that about raising awareness, what would you say is the main message that you want the public to take away from an event like that? What message would that be?
2: Well, I think it's that these young people are not, um, they're not different than the rest of our young people in, in the sense that they have hopes and dreams. They are very talented, very gifted young people. So homelessness is, as our our president Kevin Ryan often says, is the least interesting thing about our young people. These are funny, intelligent, talented young people, um, and we want people to understand that that's um, that's what our young people are, that homelessness is not who they are, it's what's happened to them. And that I think if there's a message of hope in it as well is that when our young people have stable, safe place, loving and caring adults in their lives, um, it makes such a difference to tap into all of that giftedness and use those talents for good. And that's what Covenant House is really about, helping these young people to tap into all of that giftedness
0: and as my listeners know uh, i've talked a lot about how nonprofits are suffering right now given the challenges they're facing uh, by not being able to connect directly with people in person or because of funding challenges as you look ahead how do you feel this pandemic is going to reshape the nonprofit sector and in particular for those organizations like yours that focus on issues such as homelessness
2: well i do think for those of us who focus on homelessness there'll be much more of a need Unfortunately, fortunately for the services that we offer in the coming years. Um, in addition to which I think this pandemic is reshaping how we communicate with other people more online, um, but more face-to-face online, if you will. Um, perhaps less in person uh, in some instances where from a health standpoint, that's what we need to do. Uh, from a fundraising standpoint, I think we have to be get more creative in terms of connecting with folks online. Uh, we're not always going to be able to do that in person. So I think it's going to reshape a number of aspects of the way that you do our work.
0: And how can people learn more about Covenant House and also be able to watch the concert next week?
2: So to learn more about Covenant House and to watch the concert next week, the Night of Covenant House Stars, they can go to CovenantHouse.org and they can find out all about the work that we're doing, about the young people that we're serving, and they can get the information on how to join us for Night of Covenant House Stars on Monday, May 18th, uh, starting at, I believe, 6 Um, o'clock. I've forgotten the starting time. It may be later than that, but if they go to CovenantHouse.org, they'll get all the information they need on that.
0: Sister Nancy Downing of Covenant House, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI Today. Thank you for having me. Take care now. Thank you. So you've been listening to WBAI 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and we've got just a few minutes left. I want to thank my guests today. I also want to let our listeners know that I'm always open to ideas for guests that you want to hear from. So I'm going to give you – I'm not going to give you a phone number. I listened to John uh, Kane on the last show about giving out numbers. Uh, But I'm going to give you uh, my Twitter handle, and if you even tweet to me, or, or tweet and tag me, I will search over the next week because I want to hear from you. Uh my Twitter handle is Jack Heights. Even though my name's Jeff, it's Jack Heights. J A C K H I T E S. It's my little spin on that I live in Jackson Heights. So Jack Heights, let me know what the type of guests you want to hear from. Because as much as I'm booking guests that I find interesting that I want you to hear from, I also want to rely on you, our listeners, and I want to hear from you. So I will be looking forward to that. You can also check us out on Facebook if you look up Forces Driving uh, on Facebook or my uh, Facebook handle, Jeff A. Simmons. Uh, You can go to me. Let me know the type of guests you want to hear from because I I would like to be able to also – you know have you hear from those people that you want to so i want to thank the guests today who joined me queen's district attorney melinda katz uh, former new york city council member rafael espinal who now heads the freelancers union and also who you just heard from nancy downing of covenant house and again want to point you to our website so you could listen to Celeste Katz-Marston's Coronavirus Diary Dispatches. Today you heard from Stefan Kim. I'll have another one this Sunday from a student from New York City who is not going to be able to you know, attend a public graduation ceremony this year and talk to Celeste about how she's had to take part in a virtual uh, ceremony. also want to thank Reggie Johnson. Reggie, I want to point out that you had talked about what song is going to play tonight, that that's going to be Liza Minerva's Nellie's version of New York, New York, just after seven. So I thank you for that. You know I'm going to join in. I hope you will, too. (laughs) We have been four more, and thank you very much for that. (laughs) So as I get ready to close, I also want to remind our listeners that this Sunday at six o'clock, I'll be hosting City Watch, and I have... Three interesting guests I can't wait for. One is New York State Assembly member Kathy Nolan. Also, Kathleen Stassenberger, who I crossed paths with. I was thinking about this, I think it was like 20 years ago uh, when I was a reporter at, uh, at the Post and News. She's going to discuss her book on grandmothering and the role that grandmothers are playing during the pandemic. And my third guest is Richard Moylan from Greenwood Cemetery. So I'm not sure if you had heard that only recently that they were very concerned at Greenwood and had to bring in a number of, recruit a number of volunteers as social distancing uh, ambassadors to keep people apart because on a beautiful day, so many people were going to Greenwood and they were also doing recreational activities. So I'm going to talk with him about that and also how Greenwood Cemetery is also dealing with what they're day-to-day mission is also the number of people who are coming in, unfortunately, because they had passed away. And again, you'll hear another installment of Celeste Katz-Marston's Coronavirus Diaries. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in to Driving Forces today. Again, Reggie, thanks so much for making this a flawless show. Have a wonderful day.